the one that pops to mind is uh, a recent case and an older gentleman in his 90s who had slowly lost his ability to walk without assistance or a walker um, but otherwise very fit and healthy and had uh, his his main regret was not being able to ballroom dance uh, as he had enjoyed in his uh, retirement years you know so pretty much for the past 20 30 years he was a regular ballroom dancer but slowly had to give that up over the past uh, few years and perhaps it had been a year or two before uh, since he'd been last able to ballroom dance uh, you know so he sent to me to see him for his spine he had a stenosis of the spine which is you know sort of a degenerative process that causes the bones and the discs to press on the nerves and that pressure on the nerves keeps him from being able to really have normal strength in his legs or to be able to walk normally. You know, if you look at, you know, let's say a shopping uh, center and you see older individuals bent forward over a shopping cart, often it's because they have some degree of spinal stenosis, which is that narrowing of the spinal canal caused by this degenerative process that puts pressure on the nerves. And that leaning forward posture that they take over um, opens up that space and allows them to walk further. So this was his scenario. Um, he really couldn't walk more than uh, 20 yards, you know, across a, a large room or a large uh, hall um, without having to stop and rest. Uh, we, you know, we, I saw him, reviewed the uh, MRI scan with him and, uh, you know, told him, I mean, it's fairly standard uh, surgery, uh, fairly routine surgery, but, you know, in, in someone in their uh, early to mid 90s, there's no surgery that's routine or standard. Uh, you know, if it was someone in their 60s or 70s, there'd be no no hesitation to proceed. You know, in your 90s, your risks for any procedure go uh, significantly higher. Um, you know, we did do the surgery. He did well, of course. And, you know, one of the happiest uh, patients I've ever seen, uh, just uh, within a couple of months, was back to ballroom dancing, which he had not done in at least a couple of years. And, you know, was really able to enjoy his uh, later years of life. Tell me about when he came in, uh, what he said to you, and and then when he when you know when you were following up on him, like how did he express the way life had changed? So mostly you could see it in his face. You know, when he came in, he came in with one of his uh, children. I forget if it was a daughter or a son. Um, and, you know, he's fairly depressed. Uh, you know, he, he did not want to be there. He did not think that there was any hope for him uh, to recover his functions. You know, he figured it at early to mid-90s, this is just his lot in life and uh, that this was really a waste of his time. Uh, but on the encouragement of his uh, children, uh, came to see me. Um, and, you know, his main frustration was just losing... You know, feeling sort of both the the weight of his years uh, and also the incapacity. You know, despite, you know, through his late 80s, uh, he had been independent. Uh, and he was still living alone, but was much more dependent on others around him uh, over the past couple of years. And really, he was just, hope, you know, willing to do anything, uh, including risking, uh, you know, surgery and its complications and death from anesthesia to have a hope or a chance uh, to both be independent and to be able to do once again the things that brought him joy. And 
if you could talk about when you went through the risks, put simply, how did you know? How did you explain the risks to him? You know, he was otherwise healthy. You know, he had, uh, you know, despite his nineties, uh, was on no medications, had no cardiac issues, was not diabetic. Um, so about as healthy a ninety-year-old as you could expect. But despite that, you know, your functional reserve, right? Your functional capacity of your organs, as you know, as you know, uh, in in our youth, our every organ in our body has more more functional capacity than we require of it, right? It's why you can walk comfortably and then suddenly, you know, run a marathon. And it's that that reserve capacity, both in terms of your cardiac reserve, uh, your pulmonary reserve, that allows you to do strenuous activities. As we age, we lose that uh, reserve capacity in all of our organs, which makes, you know, any stress uh, more risky for that individual. And surgery is a physiologic stress on the body. You know, there's general anesthesia, which, uh, you know, the anesthetic agents um, dampen uh, the contractility of uh, most of your muscles. Um, you're on a machine uh, that is breathing for you. Uh, there's the stress of the surgery itself on cardiac function. So, you know, I went over with him all of the, not in that kind of detail, but really went over just the fact that, you know, surgery is a stress on your heart and lungs. And although I would not recommend the surgery if I did not think you could get through it, well, certainly your risks uh, for a complication or death from the surgery is higher than normal. And what about the specific risks of the surgery itself? I mean, whenever you do a spine surgery, paralysis is a risk. Yeah, so there's uh, the the specific risks to spine surgery, as you mentioned, are of course paralysis, which is perhaps the most dreaded complications. Um, but aside from paralysis, you can have nerve injury that can result in weakness without paralysis. You can have nerve injury that results in uh, more pain uh, than you had beforehand. Although you know, often we're trying to relieve pain with spine surgery, uh, a rare but not uh, zero uh, risk is uh, worsened symptoms as a result of the surgery. Uh, there's always a risk of a spinal fluid leak. You know, your nerves are floating in a sac of fluid, and if that sac is disrupted, you can get a spinal fluid leak, which isn't a major complication, but uh, in an older individual uh, can be, because you uh, the solution to a spinal fluid leak is often you leave someone flat in bed for 24 to 72 hours, and leaving an older individual in bed for that long uh, really accelerates sort of their muscle atrophy and loss of strength. And, and it's much more difficult as we get older to recover from a day of enforced bed rest or two or three days of enforced bed rest. You know, and lastly, a wound infection. You know, any surgery has a risk of a wound infection. And, you know, should you develop a wound infection, again, lack of reserve in other organs uh, and your immune system, uh, perhaps most importantly, is not what it was in your youth, uh, makes any complication uh, more difficult to manage as we get older. So when he was through the surgery, uh, through the rehab, tell me a bit about when you were doing follow-up and, and, and what he told you. You know, it's one of the just, I mean, just the the change in the expression on his face. I mean, of course, he was incredibly grateful, you know, and they, I mean, we do this, all that we do uh, to make people better. And there's nothing more gratifying than to see someone that 
you have helped uh, recover or heal from something that would not have happened without your intervention. Um, so one is, you know, the, the most obvious was just the way he walked, you know, you observe them walking into the examination room and just, I mean, there was a spring in his step. It's, it's hard to really describe that, uh, that joy that he had just walking. Um, he dressed uh, more formally. Right, you know, I may have seen him the first time in casual clothing, you know, either sweatpants or track pants. You know, he came in the follow-up appointments in, you know, a shirt, uh, dress slacks, and a tie. Um, you know, almost as though he was going out. And then just, you know, uh, his recounting to me, you know, how far he could walk now, whereas before he couldn't walk uh, a block even without having to rest. You know, you don't know till you lose body function just how precious that stuff is. No, it's so true. I mean, we take it for granted in our youth. Um, certainly, you know, if you're not in medicine, uh, you get to see it in your older parents or grandparents, sort of the loss of ability. Um, but it's hard to relate to it uh, if you don't see it on a regular basis. And, you know, the, the, the good and the bad of uh, what we get to do is that you get to see folks um, both when they're at their worst, and hopefully you can bring them back to their best, you know, the best that they can be for their age and their physiology. Can you talk me through, just in a few minutes, the surgery that you did for this man? Um, you know, what it was that were the critical points for you, where, where, the, where the pressure was on for you to get it right. You know, you could start out with the approach, but also just say, here's where, uh, you know, highlight for me the times at which you really had to focus very carefully. So, you know, the surgery is, it's the low back, so it's lumbar spine, lumbar spinal stenosis, uh, which is a uh, narrowing of the spinal canal. And it's often at the, at the lower two or three segments of, his, of the spine. In his case, it was at uh, L3, L4, and L5. You know, there are five lumbar vertebra. They're numbered L1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Uh, in order to open up the canal, you do what's called a laminectomy, where you remove the back portion of the canal and convert what's sort of a tube structure, right, the spinal canal, into a trough. Uh, and the, the nerves and, uh, that are floating in the sac are just free with no bony cover uh, on the backside. Uh, people are always asked the question of, is that safe to do? Uh, and are the nerves more at risk as a result of removing that bony structure? And the answer is no. This is an operation that's been done for decades now. And I don't know of any document, documented cases of uh, unexpected injury as a result of uh, having had that done. The, the getting to the spine, uh, number one, you want to make sure that you're at the right level. So often we start with once the patient is in position, they're on their stomach, you're making sure that there's no uh, pressure on the abdomen uh, so that the, the um, venous outflow uh, from the abdomen or the, the lower half of the body is not compromised because that can contribute to more bleeding during the surgery. Uh, so you want to make sure that their uh, abdomen is free. You want to make sure that they're in a comfortable position uh, and that they're under general anesthesia. You know, we sterilize the skin. We get an x-ray to verify the levels. Uh, once you make the skin incision, then you work in this plane between the muscle and the bone to peel the muscle off the bone, essentially. Um, 
you recheck once you're exposed, once the bones are exposed of the spine, you recheck the levels with an X-ray just to verify that you are where you where you think you are, where you want to be. Uh, and then the bones are removed, and they're removed with, um, you know, we talked earlier about that high-speed drill. Uh, the bones are removed with a combination of uh, cutting instruments uh, that are designed to bite bone, as well as a high-speed drill designed to shave the bone off of the sac that contains the nerves. And you know, the sac that contains the nerves is similar to that membrane uh, inside the eggshell that contains the egg yolk. Uh, and just like you don't want to be damaging the membrane around an egg and get egg yolk all over your stuff, you don't want to damage the membrane uh, that contains the nerves. Um, because that can result in a spinal fluid leak. And really, that's the portion that's perhaps the most um, stressful during the surgery, making sure that you get the bones off and the nerves free. You know, the nerves are not just contained within that central canal. They also come out these channels called the foramen on the side of each segment of the vertebral body. So you have to follow the nerves as they come out of that channel to make sure that you've uh, released any pressure on the nerves. Um, and then uh, doing that without injuring the nerves, doing that without getting a spinal fluid leak, doing that without removing too much bone. You can remove too much bone, which damages the joints in the back, which then can cause instability, which then requires a fusion operation. And we do lots of fusions because uh, often it is necessary. Uh, and this individual was not necessary, and I certainly did not want to put him through a longer operation uh, than required. So what, what's the moment where... And I'm sure you've got a heightened level of attention throughout, but what's the moment where things really pick up mentally for you? It's really when you're at the bone uh, dura or thecal sac, you know, that sac that contains the nerve. That bone uh, dura interface is when you really start paying attention to make sure that you're not uh, causing a CSF like an, an older individual. Uh, two is really when you're again, removing the bones, but here when you're getting close to the joints to make sure that you remove enough bone that the nerves are free, but not so much bone that you compromise stability. Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. Hello, and welcome to Medical Moments, where I, Paris Lovett, chat with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. My guest today is Dr. Jack Jallo. He is a neurosurgeon and spine surgeon who practices at the Jefferson University Hospitals in Philadelphia. Dr. Jallo, welcome to Medical Moments. Good morning. Thank you. So I always like to start by asking a little bit about your early life. So, uh, you know, I grew up in uh, North Jersey, uh, the child of two blue-collar uh, parents. Uh, my father was uh, an electrician. My mother was a seamstress. Neither of them had gone to college or university, and I was their eldest child. Their main lesson to me, uh, or I guess advice to me growing up, was to focus on academics, uh, wanting me to be 
well-educated and not to be a laborer as they were. Uh, and I think that really influenced um, the course of my both education, career, uh, the, the drive to not just get a, a, a medical degree, but also I think a PhD and to focus onto the sciences, uh, led also to, I think, my vacillating between a, a more academic research-oriented career uh, versus a more clinical career uh, that involved patient care. And, you know, over time and some starts and stops along the way, I've sort of found my way into this position currently where I am, where I'm both an MD uh, doing mainly clinical work, but along the way and over the years had done more uh, basic science work, running a lab along with some PhD collaborators and taking a detour uh, along the way from med school to residency to within residency to re reconsider uh, my path in terms of clinical neurosurgery or clinical medicine and doing a PhD within the middle of a residency program, taking a little bit, little bit of a pause from clinical work, getting a PhD, uh, then realizing that really I enjoyed the clinical work uh, and getting to take care of patients in a way that I um, didn't appreciate while I was in the thick of it, but certainly began to miss when I was mainly managing or working in a lab. Tell me a little bit more about your parents and why it was that you think they emphasized academics so much. You know, they worked very hard. You know, they're, you know we grew up relatively um, lower middle class, I guess, would be the most appropriate sort of stratum. And they saw, uh, or they thought, I think, that you know, education was the path um, towards a better, a better life. And I think what they just wanted, you know, they, they didn't know, obviously, what it was um, that they were asking or hoping for, but they saw their own situation and thought that education was a, was a path towards um, a more fulfilling, I guess, career, work, family. Um, what they, I don't think they re realized or could realize that, you know, that path, you know, oddly enough, I was, you know, we had a lot of time together in the household given their work. Uh, you know, they, they did projects and a lot of work around the house. You know, growing up, I did a lot of work uh, fixing things around the house with my father or, you know, my uncles were uh, garage mechanics working in the garage with them. Oddly enough, you know, here I am uh, much better educated than they could have imagined. Uh, but simultaneously, there's a price that you pay for that education, which is actually less time with family, which I don't think they would have understood uh, early on in that path, or you know that that sort of stimulus to to follow that path of education. So, do you know how to wire a house? So oddly enough, um, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you've got like a bad switch box or something, do you feel confident taking it out and rewiring it, or do you just have to call somebody? I would call somebody now. I mean, at the time, I could have. I certainly could have, you know, disassembled a, a a car engine, reassembled it. But this was this is decades ago now. Uh, oh, so you you actually have taken an engine apart? So I worked, you know, in high school. I worked in the garage, and uh, although I was not very ever very good at diagnosing what the issues with the engine were, 
but once you know my uncle uh, owned the garage once he would identify what the problem was he would say you know take this part out and replace it or rebuild it uh, and i would i would do that during the summers oh wow that's a great experience uh, you know, it was, I mean, it was super fun. You know, they, you know, they couldn't afford summer school. So my summer school uh, or summer camp was uh, hanging around my uncle's garage because, you know, he ran the business for himself. My uncle, you know, my parents, on the other hand, you know, worked in other, uh, in, in, I guess, a shop that they were running themselves. So they couldn't have kids running around. Um, but, I, you know, I think they really dissuaded me from learning. <laughs> Or uh, uh, you know, labor-oriented, uh, I guess, activities. You know, whether it was, you know, my father and his good friend, who was a carpenter, built or rebuilt the whole inside of our house growing up at one point or another. You know, they installed the, they dismantled the bathrooms, installed new bathrooms. You know, dismantled the kitchen down to the studs and then you know rebuilt the kitchen themselves uh, but mainly my role in that environment uh, i was younger than was the gopher getting them whatever they needed <laughs> uh, but it was you know it was it was a great experience that i that i wish i could uh pass on to my kids you know my kids on the other hand who are in high school themselves right now uh you know what i can pass on to them is really where i've evolved more on the uh on the computer end, you know, sort of one of my hobbies has been uh, building, uh, you know, all the computers in my house are boxes that I've assembled myself. Uh, not nearly as interesting as uh, taking apart, a, you know, a house or a, a car. So are, are these computers massively overpowered to what your kids have to do with them? <laughs> they are. It's, you know, some of them are probably projects, you know, taking a, uh, you know, building a, a what's called a hack and touch, which is a uh, using PC parts, assemble a box, and then installing a Mac operating system uh, in that box, which is sort of just a, a fun exercise that sort of works most of the time. Uh, but it would certainly be easier just to buy a Macintosh computer. Uh, that said, it's it is a learning experience. I think both for myself and for them to learn how to. You know, both put the parts together and then also how to manipulate the software so it does what you want it to do. So you're teaching them to code? I, uh, no. You know, more problem solving, I think, than coding. You know, I'm not writing code. Uh, you do have to sort of get out uh, and identify what code is out there that works for the hardware that you have. And you know, and, and try to manipulate it in a way that allows it to work. I, I have coded, but it's been, again, um, you know, my undergraduate degrees were both in uh, computer science. I had a minor and was coding in, you know, languages that no longer exist, you know, Fortran. So what, what kind of kid were you? And, and when did you first get interested in medicine? I was very shy and very bookish, I think, best word for it uh not inter and you know socially awkward uh at the at at my best uh uncomfortable around other people and really found solace in books so in my first you know i started reading i guess in third grade for fun and worked my way through the school library mainly science fiction you know i, I really sort of gravitated towards uh a future that you know we've somehow fallen into um 
but really attracted to those books. And, you know, over the years, it worked my way through, you know, the high school uh, library, all their science fiction books, the local public library, which is actually fairly large. It was in Hackensack, New Jersey. So they had a, they had a really fabulous uh, public library. And then the local bookstores and just getting, you know, working my way through all their science fiction uh, collections. Um was good at math and science, sort of, you know, gravitated towards what came easy to me. So math and science seemed to come easy. Uh, thought, you know, there were some people in my extended family who were engineers. So going to university, I thought I'd end up in something science-oriented. Um, it was a math, I started out as a math, science, maybe chemistry major. You know, I was playing around with a variety of options and fell into medicine, um, I mean, I hate to say it by chance, but almost by chance. I hadn't really considered medicine until I was in university. And my roommate, who's a good friend from high school, whose father was a physician, applied to an early, um, uh, an early decision uh, program or application at uh, George Washington University. It was the first year they were doing it. And they took sophomores. As a sophomore, you could apply without having to take the MCATs. And, um, I applied with him <laughs> because he was doing it and uh, we got in and, you know, nothing else really caught my fancy. I, I completed uh, a degree in, it was a mixed degree in both uh, animal as well as uh, plant biology. So I ended up with what was mainly a plant biology degree. Uh, no, sorry, an animal biology degree, which ended up with a zoology. So I'm technically a zoology major. Um, but mainly that was just driven by my own interests. I also ended up uh, getting a minor in philosophy as well as chemistry and just enjoyed, you know, learning uh, and got fascinated with philosophy in the workings of the mind. And I think it was really in those philosophy classes in university that I really became fascinated with um, the mind and that translated in medicine you know once i got into medical school into neuroscience uh and sort of the the duality of sort of the brain versus the mind and that took me towards you know sort of you know i i, I really enjoyed i found in medical school all the all the electives or the courses that dealt with the brain you know whether it was psychiatry uh, we had a fantastic psychiatry program at GW, uh, whether it was neurology, you know, we did our neurology rotations in a neurocritical care unit. And I realized there that I was more interested in, uh, environments where people were critically ill. Uh, and then by chance ended up doing a, an elective in neurosurgery. Um, it was a two week elective and it was just, you know, that it, it changed everything uh, for me in terms of um, the appeal of medicine. You know, I think before before that two week elective in neurosurgery, I was struggling to figure out uh, what what appealed to me uh, above and beyond just sort of the the brain and the study of the of the brain. I enjoyed psychiatry, and uh, but found out I was not personality wise well suited to sitting and listening and that was also an issue with neurology feeling that i couldn't really intervene in a way that um felt it had a strong impact on uh on patients and i think the big appeal uh, of neurosurgery is just 
how critically important that moment in their life was. Uh, and that the rest of, the, I guess, history after that, I ended up, you know, sort of fascinated with neurosurgery and just the acuity of the illnesses and the impact you had on patients' lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I can think of, as a generalist, of course, I'm an emergency physician. I can't think of too many things that require a procedural intervention from a neurosurgeon that do not seem very significant in someone's life. No, yeah, absolutely. You know, whether it was, you know, what, um, what really caught my attention was, you know, the program I was, uh, where I was doing my, uh, tra- uh, I guess my medical school had a very uh, strong neurosurgery uh, department uh, with a, the chair of neurosurgery at the time was, you know, just a larger than life uh, human being whose specialty was uh, a combination of uh, pituitary tumors, which you would see in young individuals. Um, and, you know, they would come in with severe illnesses, uh, about to lose their vision, and they would go to surgery. He would take out this pituitary tumor, and, you know, their vision would recover to normal. Or, you know, there would be, a, you know, a vascular anomaly with an aneurysm that had ruptured, someone who was critically ill, uh, with a mortality rate that at the time was almost 50%. And, you know, they would go to surgery, and the, the surgery was, you know, the tension in the room associated with the surgery was incredible. And just the calm, organized approach uh, that this, you know, that the chair of neurosurgery had towards managing these patients was something I wanted to emulate. And, uh, and I did. <laughs> I can't tell you how common it is. Um, you're the tenth person I've interviewed for this podcast series. What you just said—that there was a crystallizing period in which someone stood out as 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 a person to emulate in that way—and that clarified someone's choice of career. Yeah, I think you know. I think when you're young and you're trying to sort out what it is that you want to be or to do, uh, there isn't a really good way to get onto that path that I'm aware of, uh, other than uh, if you're fortunate enough to identify someone that you think highly of, and then you want to emulate them. Uh, and then that sort of, for me, uh, you know, I'd been, this was in my third, towards the end of my third year, in medical school, which is late, uh, you know, most people by then had had already decided what they wanted to do, and you know, many of the folks, you know, neurosurgery at the time was super. Um, in t- uh, I, I'm not sure what the word is. You know, the people who wanted to go into neurosurgery, it was almost as though they were born knowing they wanted to be neurosurgeons, and I was sort of the oddball that you know came into it and thought, well, I could do this. Um, but I could do, you know, I thought I could do many other things also that had to do uh, with the, the brain. Uh, but, you know, seeing this one individual uh, sort of did crystallize things for me and made it such that I wanted to, you know, emulate them. And, you know, I don't know that I have, but I've certainly done the best I could. <laughs> Was there a particular aha uh-huh moment that you remember? And then you said, that's it. This is it. This is the specialty for me. I want to be a neurosurgeon. 
Yeah, so it was you know it was a combination of things. One is uh, it was an annual. I, I do remember the uh, in the in the operating room. It was uh, a young woman who'd had an aneurysm that ruptured, um, and then we were you know he was the surgeon was in the operating room, uh, ex, you know opening the skull, uh, dissecting through the hemorrhage to the aneurysm, you know the blood vessel that was abnormal that had an aneurysm on it. And in the middle of the dissection, the aneurysm ruptured. And you know the way he coordinated, you know, everyone's actions in the room. You know, discussing what was happening with the anesthesiologist, with the nurses in the room, with the chief resident that was assisting him. Just getting everyone uh, to focus on repairing that bleeding vessel. Uh, well, can well, set the scene. Forrest, tell us the kind of things he was saying to them and what it looked like. So, you know, what what, what it looks like is, you know, from a few feet away, you know, obviously I'm standing in the back, you know, it, in one moment everything is progressing, you know, calmly but in a tense fashion. And what does that look like? Like what, is, what does it look like in the moments where everything is as it, as it was planned to be? And then what changes? So, you know, you're exposing, you know, he's working between the, uh, the folds of the brain, uh, working his way down towards the blood vessels. Um, and, so, you know, and it's a very slow progression where you're dissecting the membranes that hold the different lobes of the brain together. And the blood vessels are sitting uh, within the folds of the brain. Um, and as he's doing that dissection, he's, you know, discussing what it is that he's doing so that and he's working under a microscope. Uh, the assistant surgeon, who was the chief resident, can see what he's doing because he's also looking through the microscope with him. You know, the microscope has two heads to it, so they can both see uh, and work together uh, in the dissection. Uh, the nurses are looking at a monitor. There's a television monitor in the day that they could see what was happening, but it's not as good as actually looking in the microscope, you lose sort of that uh, that depth perception, and certainly the anesthesiologists are behind the screen, uh, maintaining the patient's uh, blood pressure, uh, temperature, oxygenation levels. When the aneurysm ruptures, I mean, literally, you see a fountain of blood come out of the brain, and he very rapidly uh, and you know assertively. Uh, asks for a t uh, what's called a temporary clip. It looks like an alligator clip um, that is soft and it can be applied and removed. And, you know, the nurse fumbles to get the clip on correctly, and he very calmly reassures her that you really need to get this clip on as quickly as possible for me to apply to this bleeding vessel so we can stop the bleeding. Concurrently, he lets anesth the anesthesiologist, who may not be able to see what he's doing, lets them know that there's been a large uh, hemorrhage occurring and asks them to get uh, you know, blood in the room so they can resuscitate the patients because you're losing a lot of blood very quickly when this happens. Um, he gets the, the clip, uh, gets handed to him uh, on an applier by the nurse, and you know, very calmly, as he's suctioning blood that is coming out of the brain to get it under control and helping the chief resident apply suction as well so that they can actually see the source of the hemorrhage and then applies a temporary clip to get the hemorrhage under control. So when you've got 
sudden bleeding in the abdomen. I mean, I know that surgeons will pack and pack and pack off quadrants so that they can see what on earth is going on and get control of it. What do you do in a situation like this? So, you know, unlike uh, the abdomen or, you know, most most of the rest of the body, you know, one of the uh, sort of dogmas of hemorrhage control is tamponade, right? So, you know, if you cut yourself, uh, you're told, or, you know, in basic, um, basic first aid, to apply pressure and to elevate it so you reduce the, uh, the, the outflow of blood. And that applies to most of the body. It doesn't work in the brain. You can't really tamponade the brain right, without damaging it. So in the brain, what you do when you've got a hemorrhage like that is to try to suction the blood out of the way so that you can see what the source of bleeding is. And if you can identify the source of the bleeding, you can put pressure on the blood vessel itself. right? So if it's a vein, you can generally control venous bleeding by just applying some pressure on the vein itself. If it's an arterial bleed, which is what an aneurysm is, it's an arterial blood, it's, the force of the blood is such that it's hard to apply enough pressure to make it stop. And then what you end up do, using are these specially designed uh, clips that go and close off the blood vessel, right? The, the risk there is if you're closing off the blood vessel uh, not where it is abnormal, but where it is feeding the abnormality, and you're also closing off the blood supply to the normal brain when you do that, right? So you have a limited amount of time that you apply what's called a temporary clip to allow you to find uh, the rent uh, in the artery, and then to try to reconstruct the normal flow of blood around that rent without allowing it to continue bleeding. So the temporary clip gives you a little bit of time to allow you to repair the rupture in the wall of the aneurysm, uh, and then you remove the temporary clip so that you don't cause a stroke. And I think for non-doctors, we have a popular image that someone who's shot in their leg can bleed out or someone who's shot in the chest or abdomen, for instance, or stabbed in the chest. We can we have an image of a lot of blood coming out of those areas, but I don't know that people realize quite how vascular the brain is and how much blood flow there is. Uh, it's an organ that needs a lot of blood flow and uh, you know, it can bleed as good as, as a chest any day. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's true. I think most non-neurosurgeons uh, don't appreciate, you know, 20% of your cardiac output, you know, 20% of the blood that's coming out of your heart is going to your brain. Uh, and you can certainly, when, you've, when you have a, a carotid rupture, you know, bleed to death fairly easily. And, you know, the internal carotid is the, the carotid artery, which comes from, your, you know, the, your heart up your neck into the brain. Uh, branches, but the internal carotid artery is, you know, you've, you have two of them, and that's a lot of blood supply that's going uh, that's going through those vessels. And when they rupture, it's a, I mean, literally, it's like a fountain coming out of your head. Right. We see the external carotid a lot in movies. Like in The Grifters, there's a famous scene where uh, John Cusack, uh, John Cusack's mother actually, accidentally uh, uh, smashes a, a, a glass into his neck and it starts pumping out. Um, but it's the same vessel. 
So I'd forgotten that movie. I had <laughs> so take me back just a little bit about medicines. You're saying you were in college before you even thought about it. Is that true? That is true. I really thought I'd, uh, you know, going to university. You know, no one in uh, my immediate family had gone to college or university. So it was really, and you know, what, what I knew is that I was good in, the, like I said, uh, math and science, right? I was focusing on the sciences, you know, I think just like any other kid, you, you tend to gravitate towards things that you are rewarded for or that seem to come easily for you. Uh, so I was, you know, focusing on the sciences and I just, you know, by good fortune, had a roommate who was uh, who knew he wanted to go into medicine. And although I was attracted to the sciences, you know, so I had some family members who were um, extended family members who were mechanical or chemical engineers and thought that I would uh, drift towards that as well. Although I wasn't in an engineering school, you know, I was so uh, uninformed or poorly informed. I didn't realize that to be a mechanical or a chemical engineer, you had to go to an engineering school. And I was at a, you know, uh, um, a regular university, not a, not the, not the uh, engineering portion of the school. So I was taking, you know, biology, chemistry, physics, calculus, um, trying to figure out what to do, and then got a, you know, had a roommate who, as I said, knew he wanted to go into medicine, and then got into medical school because I couldn't think of anything else to do at the time. What did he say to you about what medicine would be like? Do you remember just thinking, you know, what he said that that swayed you? I, you know, I think he liked the service. At, I mean, he was very religious. He was. Uh, a Catholic uh, who, and, you know, and he and I would go to, I mean, we were both, you know, I don't even, I, it's hard to remember that, that version of myself. Uh, you know, certainly at this point in life, I tend more towards agnosticism than anything else. Uh, but at the time I grew up in a religious household as well. So we would go to mass uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and, you know, I think the, the service aspect of medicine uh, appeal to him and to me as well. I think the idea of being able to do something that benefited uh, both society as well as uh, at a personal level, an individual uh, was very gratifying. Right? And we'd both grown up as you know altar boys in the church, and had you know, you know, my father as a as an electrician, you know, when he wasn't at work working, you know, in the evenings we would go to church and. Uh, do repairs around the church uh, during the weekdays. That was sort of an, you know a regular uh, week, you know almost a weekly activity. There was so, there's always something at the church that needed to be repaired, and my father ended up functioning as the handyman for the church. It strikes me that you didn't entirely take a different path from your father because you still have tracts. That's <laughs> true. You have neurological tracts that are a bit like me figuring out which circuit breaker led to which wire led to which light. No, it's very true. You know, it's it's part of the fascination for me uh, in terms of you know what led me towards neurosurgery was you know it wasn't just the the clinical aspect of it. You know, the basic science of you know neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. You know, our our, our nervous system is just an electrochemical sort of network of, uh, you know, nerve cells and connections, not dissimilar to the electrical wiring to the, of, of a house. You know, when I discuss with patients, uh, you know, mainly what I'm doing now is spine surgery, but when I discuss with patients, you know, nerve-related pain, it's not dissimilar to having a short circuit 
when a nerve is pinched to a short circuit in the electrical wiring to a room or to a house, and the light bulb goes out because the wire is has worn out or is shorted out. And I've used that analogy myself, actually. It's funny. So who do you think is well-suited to a life in neurosurgery, and who might find, if they chose it, that they maybe felt they chose the wrong specialty? What kind of person? Yeah, I think the specialty has evolved a, you know, a lot over the past uh, 20 years. You know, certainly when we were training, there were no limits on work hours. And you pretty much as a neurosurgery resident, because it's a relatively small field with critically ill patients, you, you've, you spent a lot of time uh, in the hospital taking care of patients you know you 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 i mean it was not uncommon for me to spend 120 hours in the hospital uh, in a week and you were you know you would be on call you'd be up all night long and then the next day you would still be expected to do a full day's worth of work i think the the work our restrictions for residents has made the training program much more humane and opened it up to a broader number of uh, of medical students. I think, you know, back in the day, I would say you really needed to be dedicated to your work and to your patients, and that had to be your first priority. And, you know, the sacrifices that you're expected to make in terms of your personal life were fairly significant. I think that's still the case. Uh, you know, I think neurosurgery residents are still some of the hardest working residents in the hospital. And you have, and you know, the illnesses that you're taking care of are are very significant or uh, life changing for the patients that you're that you're treating, uh, and you have to be willing uh, and you have to want to take care of patients that may be on the path of you know they're they're actively dying. I mean. And your intervention is to try to prevent them often just from dying, and that you're not always successful. And you have to be a you have to be resilient enough to uh, accept outcomes that are certainly beyond your control that are not what you want. I'm not sure if I answered that as well as I'd like. Well, you gave I think a, a real picture of what it takes. So, do you ever have thoughts about what kind of medical student? should think, yeah, neurosurgery might really be a match for me. And, other, and another kind of medical student who might think, you know, maybe I could get in, um, but I don't know if I'd be happy doing it. Yeah, you know, one of my, you know, one of my co I think a good example would be one of my co-residents when I was in training, super bright, uh, you know, one of the smartest people I've, I've known. And we're friends to this day, uh, and this is 30 years later. Um, you know, in his first six months of neurosurgery residency, decided this was not for him. Um, and and he's now a psychiatrist and a very happy psychiatrist. I think what he realized is he wanted to spend time talking to patients and also to problem solve over a long period of time. And I think neurosurgery, uh, you know, there's neurology, right, where you're getting to work also with brain disorders but you have some time uh, in terms of your interventions and the disease process. Um, I think neurosurgery appeals more to um, 
someone like myself who wants to fix a problem, but not continue working on it over a long period of time. You know, something uh, as an example, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, right? That's a that's a, a disease process that once you're managing that patient, it's a lifelong commitment to that patient to see them through that disease. And and I think it's very important that 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 those patients have someone to care for them over their lifetime. I mean, I think, you know, the phys- the physician, the neurologist who's managing multiple sclerosis is a, is a very special kind of person. Myself, I, I didn't have that sort of stamina. I, w- I found I was much better uh, at managing people who are critically ill that, that I could intervene on and then hopefully get them better and then let them go on with their life. Uh, I wasn't attracted to uh, sort of a lifelong commitment to managing a disease or a person. And I think that also is part of what led, you know, I did a fellowship in neurotrauma and critical care. And again, I think that, you know, similar to, I think, an ED doc, right? You you want to be able to intervene in a, in a very sort of acute setting and then move on to the next uh, sort of scenario or the next sort of patient that needs your, your intervention or your help. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, I remember one thing that was formative was doing internal medicine rounds and the, just the, how long they lasted and how much people talked. Um, I just wasn't drawn to it. I wanted to be able to get in, you know, to talking with the patient, figuring things out and yes, moving on to something else. Yeah. And I, I, I laugh when you said, I had a similar experience. I couldn't, you know, I found I couldn't pay attention long enough. You know, I think there are certain specialties with it. And this this is the beauty of medicine, I think, is that, you know, people, you know, ask me, uh, young, you know, young, you know, college age kids who come and spend some time with us uh, in the hospital, you know, what, and they're uncertain if medicine is for them. And I, I reassure everyone that, you know, there's so many different ways to be a physician that, are, that you can, you can really find a niche within any, within medicine that can appeal to almost any personality type. And, you know, for myself, I think similar to you, you know, the, the medicine rounds that seem to never end. I, I, and I found myself, you know, drifting away and daydreaming in the middle of rounds because I just didn't have that kind of attention span. Right. Oh, yeah, no, I, that was torture for me. Um, so what would you say are the highs and the lows of your working life? You know, I think the highs are, it, it, it's varied over, over the years. Uh, you know, I started out uh, neurosurgery uh, when I finished residency I did a uh, fellowship in neurotrauma and critical care because, you know, I think similar to an ED doc or a trauma surgeon, I was really attracted to sort of trying to help people who are, you know, critically ill and trying to die. And your intervention is really to keep them alive. And that that adrenaline sort of rush, and I, I hate to say that word because it's, I think, overused, but I don't have a better uh, way to describe it, but you know the the stimulus you get of trying to save someone who is on their path to death is is I think what initially really appealed to me in uh, in neurosurgery and you know f- led me towards a fellowship in uh, neurotrauma and critical care. Uh, 
my elective practice early on was mainly brain surgery, and uh, I was doing mainly vascular and uh, brain tumor surgery for the first 15 years of uh, my neurosurgery career. But then over, you know, over time, as you mature, uh, you start to appreciate, I think, more the management of patients in their everyday life and trying to get them back to functioning in a way that allowed them to have a more normal life. You know, patients who are just uh, having a neurological decline that that you could intervene in and change their lives. And the that transition for me was really uh, what we call functional neurosurgery. Uh, for a period of five or 10 years, I was really doing a lot of uh, deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease or movement disorders. And there you took patients with chronic diseases. You know, my, my uncle had Parkinson's disease and, you know, saw that the, the, the decline of someone in their, what should have been their prime or their, you know, their golden years, um, taken away from them by a disease that really progressed slowly and isolated them from society. My uncle was a priest and, you know, as his Parkinson's progressed, he was, uh, you know, ashamed to um, perform uh, the the mass uh, service because, you know, he, he couldn't get his tremors under control. And, you know, I think, you know, and certainly I wouldn't, I wouldn't treat him, but I sent him to, uh, to a good friend of mine in New York and he was evaluated for a deep brain stimulator. Um, unfortunately, he did not qualify, but that's part of what really appealed to me is, you know, trying to give people back, uh, their functional abilities as they, as, as they aged, as we all do. Um, and then, you know, most recently for the past 10 years, my practice has really focused more on spine surgery taking individuals whose, you know, spines have deteriorated to the point where they really can't walk. And the ability to give people back the ability to walk and function independently in their, you know, really their golden years um, is very gratifying. So with spine surgery, it isn't just the ability to walk. I mean, there's also bowel and bladder and sexual function, yes? Yes. And, you know, and pain, you know, I think, you know, the pain is what really limits people. But of course, you know, there, are, once you get into bladder, bowel and sexual functions, that tends to be more urgent surgeries, right? So a patient that comes in with uh, incontinence because of a nerve, you know, nerve or spinal cord that are under pressure, those tend to be relatively urgent uh, surgeries. And, you know, I've done a handful of those uh, over the past few weeks, because that's really the only surgeries because they're urgent surgeries that we're doing despite sort of this COVID uh, restrictions that we're all under. You know, we're not doing any elective surgeries at this point, but, you know, every week there's two or three patients that require spine surgery because the pressure on the spinal cord of the nerves is, is both affecting uh, their strength, uh, you know, patients that are becoming slowly paralyzed from spinal cord compression, or it's affecting their ability to control their bladder, bowel, or sexual functions. Can you walk me through one of those cases that left an impression on you? The one that really uh, comes to mind is a younger woman who had um, a tumor uh, in the spine that was pressing on the nerves. And, and she was young. And, and, and it stood out just because she was, you know, super active, uh, you know, very athletic, very young. But 
was slowly becoming disabled uh, by the pressure both on the spinal cord and the nerves in her neck. And she had um, a relatively benign tumor, but it's a tumor that is of the bone. It's a giant cell tumor of the bone that it's important that you remove all of the tumor. Otherwise, it tends to come back. And every time it comes back, it, uh, it becomes more difficult to achieve a cure. And, you know, this was a two-stage operation where we, uh, we came in uh, at first from the back of the neck to remove uh, the tumor and the bones that it, was, uh, that it was growing in and get pressure off the spinal cord, but then to make sure that we'd got all of the tumor out. We also had to come in in a staged fashion on a separate day from the front of the neck to go in and remove the vertebral body and reconstruct the spine. And it, it was it was, you know, a long, you know, it stands in my mind just because it was a very long surgery um, over the course of days. And she did very well, although initially, uh, you know, she really struggled with, you know, she had some uh, more weakness from the surgery, uh, having difficulty using her, uh, her one arm uh, where uh, it was really wrapped around the nerve that went to her arm. Uh, but over the course of a few months, she really recovered everything and has done uh, beautifully and this is now years later and you know she comes and visits on a regular basis and it's very gratifying to see her every you know every year in follow-up and seeing that you know there's been no tumor recurrence so to to talk a bit more about that case there's two things that really interest me one is um as a non-surgeon the idea of going through the front of the neck and you think about all the things that are there you think about um you know your your trachea your esophagus, the carotid, um, the jugular, uh, you know, it's, there, the thyroid, there's so much stuff there that you don't want to damage. Um, I find it hair-raising to think about getting through there to get to the bones at the back. Um, the other is, if you could just paint a, a portrait of what her symptoms were, um, what she was experiencing before the surgery. So, you know, initially it was a relatively mild uh, neck and arm pain that just would not go away, right? So she'd had it for uh, months um, and, you know, had tried, you know, physical therapy, had some injections, um, had seen, I think, a chiropractor and nothing seemed to get rid of this gnawing neck and arm pain over the course of months. And then she had an MRI scan performed and the MRI demonstrated this this unusual tumor, you know, and initially it wasn't clear what it was because, you know, in my 30 years, I've seen two patients like this. And that's part of the reason why it stands out. It's just such an unusual kind of tumor in a young individual. Um, so I think that's what stood out. With regards to the, you know, the next surgery, um, you know, reminds me, you know, I really enjoyed as a medical student, actually, had a neck surgery. Uh, and I think the appeal there is and for me part of the appeal of neurosurgery is the combination of the acuity of the uh, diseases that you're managing but also the delicacy that's required right so getting to the spine through the front of the neck as you said there are many important structures there and i think what really makes a surgeon uh capable of doing you know complex surgery uh, in an area with lots of important structures is your ability to be delicate and to identify uh, tissue planes that allow you to make your way uh, through or 
next to all these important structures to get to the disease that you're trying to uh, address without injuring anything along the way. And that's, you know, that's a lot because neurosurgery has so many, you know, you're working around so many delicate structures and a lot of the diseases that you're managing are relatively uncommon. I think that's part of the reason why it's such a long training program, you know, it's seven years of residency and often after those seven years, you're doing a fellowship that, you know, takes another year or two before you're really qualified to do what, what you've been training to do, right? So, I mean, if, the, if you think about the the training that's required to get to the point where you can do these operations safely, it's, you know, four years of undergraduate, four years of medical school, seven years of residency, and then in, in addition to those seven years, one or two years of fellowship training. Oh, my God. And it's easily a decade of your life that you're really giving up, so you you get the privilege of of taking care of these patients. Can you talk about what it was that you did in your anterior approach? Just describe what you did to get to uh, the vertebral bodies. So, you know, I do a lot of, uh, you know, about half of my practice currently. You know, it's, you know my practice has evolved over the, the, the years, obviously. But about almost a third to one half of what I do is uh, neck surgery uh, for uh, a variety of spine disorders in the neck. And the, you know, the anterior approach is, it's an elegant, you know, getting to the spine through the front of the neck, it's a relatively elegant sort of technical approach. And as you said, part of that is because there are so many delicate structures along the way. Um, The key to it is really (laughs) what makes it go well is that you avoid all the delicate structures. There are these tissue planes that allow you to go from the skin all the way to the bones of the spine without disrupting any normal anatomy. Right? And, so, and let me jump in and just make a comment for non-doctors about tissue planes. If you can imagine uh, trying to take the shell off an egg without leaving any pieces of shell, and then taking the white off the yolk without leaving any pieces of yolk on the inside of the white, in other words, cleanly dividing between layers, uh, I think that's an analogy for tissue planes in surgery. Is that fair? No, that's a great analogy. You know, another one is sort of the tissue plane, if you think about it in terms of animal tissue, right? It's that it's that clear white um, membrane uh, that is between uh, or that encases the muscles. Although your egg analogy made me uh, recall, you know, one of the training sessions we had when I was a resident is when we had these new high-speed drills come up to the... Uh, uh, become available for use uh, in surgery. One of the drills that the, one of the exercises that they had you uh, do with the drill was take a raw egg and have it, uh, you know, sort of sitting on a in a stand, and then you take a drill and the um, the exercise was to drill off the egg shell without disrupting the membrane. Oh wow! Underneath. Oh, wow. Because if you disrupted the membrane, obviously you had egg yolk all over you. And that that membrane, of course, resembles the membranes of the brain and cord. Yes. Ah, okay. Now I see it. Well, I'll let you get back to the the anterior dissection. Yeah. So, you know, you you, you make the skin incision and usually it tends to be a horizontal incision going from side to side because that tends to heal the best. It has the the least amount of tension on it and often the scars on the front of the neck are invisible after a year Uh, once you get through the skin uh, then you have a thin muscle layer called the platysma that's a 
that's one of the, when you grimace, it's the it's the muscle that causes your neck to uh, contract, uh, or you see a muscle contracting underneath the skin. Uh, so we split the platysma, um, and uh, you then dissect it free a little bit so you can reapproximate it um, when you are done with the surgery and are putting things back together again. The once you get past the platysma, though, you're really just going in between everything, uh, right? So the first thing you do once you uh, uh, once you get past the platysma is identify a muscle called the sternocleidomastoid muscle, which is what connects your sternum to your mastoid uh, process. It's the muscle when you uh, that really allows you to turn your neck from. It's one of the major muscles that allows you to turn your neck from side to side. Uh, you want to go just in front of that muscle, and you gently. Uh, dissect uh, along the anterior or front border of that muscle uh, until you get to the um, carotid and internal jugular. And there you want to feel them. You want to make sure that they are um, not in front of you, that they, are, uh, that they stay along that muscle. Right? So you want to make sure that your, your carotid is to the side uh, where the muscle is. And then you're slowly pushing or dissecting a plane that allows your tracheal esophagus to, to stay on the other side of that muscle, right? So you're working in this plane between your major blood vessels and that major muscle, the sternocleidomastoid muscle, uh, and opening up that space and pushing the esophagus and the windpipe or the trachea in the other direction. And you know, in a relatively short period of time, it takes 15, 20 minutes maybe, you find yourself on the spine. And then once you get to the spine, there are um, muscles along the spine uh, that you peel off of the spine a little bit uh, to allow you to place uh, retractors. That's the first time you really place a retractor uh, into the neck that holds everything open for you and that allows you to do the work that you need to do. Wow. So interesting. So can you talk to me about some cases that have stuck with you through the years? Either because you felt, you know, you, you were struck by the impact on the patient or because it, it left a big impact on you? Uh, you know, there's, there's uh, good ones and then there's uh, ones that didn't work out as well as you would like. Yeah, it would be good to hear about both. And also, do you have a hard stop at nine? Uh, yes, unfortunately, I have a clinic that starts. Okay, and we can always pick this up on a on another if if that were, if that works for you. Um, yes, that'd be great. The you know one of the ones that has really stayed with me in a negative uh, way was a uh, a younger gentleman who was in his late thirties, early forties, who had a daughter who was maybe nine or ten, and you know he presented with this. Uh, a benign tumor of the spine, you know, a meningioma growing inside the thoracic spine. And it presented itself with relatively mild weakness. Um, so, you know, I see him, he's already had the MRI scan done, uh, and the MRI scan was done for a combination of back pain and a little bit of unsteadiness involving his gait. Um, you know, we see him, we do some further testing, we schedule the surgery, and we schedule the surgery, you know, at a time that's convenient for him, as well as um, the hospital schedule. 
And the surgery scheduled, I think, three or four weeks after I see him. I see him once again just as a checkup uh, two weeks or so before surgery. And, you know, he's he seems to be doing fine. Uh, and then the week of surgery, I get a call from his wife saying that he had died. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a young... It's a young man uh, with wife and, you know, an infant child as well as this nine and ten-year-old child who died from a pulmonary embolus because he was in, you know, in too much pain to move and experiencing some weakness, developed a blood clot in his legs that then went to his lungs and caused them to expire. And truthfully, you know, that's... That's tragic uh, in and of itself. I think what really uh, made it something that I can, you know, that I still sort of regret years later was a letter from my daughter, who was nine or ten years old, uh, where for, you know, in her, and I can still recall her handwriting, um, which is, you know, the writing of a child who is in distress, um, essentially blaming me for her father's death. And you know, to this day, I'm not sure what I could have done differently or what I could have said differently to her to to comfort her. Um, and, you know, and of course, I you know, I responded to her and to her mother and, you know, offered condolences and regrets. Um, but to that, you know, that young child, I mean, you know, this you know, relatively benign, I mean, you know, simple tumor changed the course of her life. And it's not something that, you know, I've, I've ever been able to forget. Wow. It's a very sad story. You know, I know, um, you know, when I've had outcomes that haven't gone well, I go back and forth in my head, you know, I go back and forth and say, well, maybe I could have done this. Maybe I could have done that. And then I say, no, that's, you know, from what you knew at the time, you know, if you were given the same circumstances again, you wouldn't have done this or that. You know, if you face the same circumstances tomorrow, things wouldn't be different. So you kind of blame yourself, let yourself off the hook, and you go around in circles a little bit. No, and I can give you another. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, one of the things about neurosurgery is you have to be willing to accept sort of tragic consequences of your actions. And I think, you know, to, to the credit of medicine as a specialty, you know, our M&M, Morbidity and Mortality Conference, that we have uh, monthly, where, you know, all the surgeons, along with the residents and medical students, get together and review all of our poor outcomes, you know, everything that doesn't go the way that you want it to go. And, you know, we review it as a group and discuss, you know, what could we have done differently? What should we have done differently? Uh, what did we really misjudge or do poorly and you know a case where i actually did have a poor outcome based on uh a surgery that i did was again a uh, a younger woman uh, who was in her mid late late 30s early 40s she was a police officer super active you know played on a baseball on a softball team uh was sort of a just one of the most remarkable individuals you would meet had a relatively unusual disc herniation in the thoracic spine. You know, we don't often see uh, thoracic disc herniations. Uh, 
um, and it had been uh, partially calcified. You know, uh, the disc had 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 some bony deposits within it, which makes it uh, uh, gives it a, a bony texture or, or a, a stiffness to it that makes it more difficult to remove. And you know, in the thoracic spine, we can come to the spine uh, again, similar to the neck or the low back. We can come through the chest, uh, coming in through the the front or side of the spine, or we can come at it from uh, directly and behind. And a quick, quick explanation. And, so in your spine, you have the bones, which are the vertebral bodies, and between them are these uh, discs um, that enable your spine to bend. That's where the bones articulate, where they join each other. Um, and those discs can slip. They can squash, and a part of the disc will push out, and it may push on the spinal cord or on a nerve. And so when people talk about a pinched nerve, that's often what they're talking about. And usually you get them in the neck or the lower back, but this is an example of the part of the back that is uh, behind your chest. So, you know, that was a really good summary of sort of spine anatomy. If you, if you think about your spine, it's a series of joints. You know, you've got the vertebral bodies, and the disc functions as the joint that allows it to move. And just like joints anywhere else in your body, the, the joints can wear out. And when the joints wear out in your spine, it's the disc often that's wearing out. And if it herniates or protrudes and is pressing on a nerve, that can cause some pain. If it's pressing on the spinal cord, that can cause weakness. And uh, this young woman uh, had pressure on her spinal cord. And, you know, it's an operation I had done dozens of times um, and decided to do it, you know, and we had discussed, you know, doing it from the front, which is really a side approach that goes through, you know, it requires that you collapse the lungs. Uh, you go in between the ribs uh, to get to the spine. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to that. Uh, mainly, I think it's a slightly more difficult recovery for the individuals, or you can do it s straight through the back of the spine, uh, you know, right in the middle, and try to come off to one side or the other once once you get to, to the uh, the bones of the spine. We decided to go through the back of the spine, and honestly, I thought the surgery had gone without any incident. Uh, but despite that, uh, you know, she woke up paralyzed. And it was, uh, you know, obviously devastating for both of us. Um, now, she did improve over time um, and, you know, went from not being able to move her legs to being able to walk and to run. But she's, she was left with enough clumsiness in her, in her legs or... Uh, relatively less control in her legs than she would require to be a, a police officer. And really being a police officer was her passion in life. I mean, she loved doing it. It was what gave her life meaning. And, you know, the surgery that was, whose intent was to give her or allow her to maintain that, uh, that life choice, uh, that occupation, that livelihood uh, was taken away from her by the surgery. And, it was, you know, not something that's that's easy to recover from. Uh, if you're the 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 surgeon uh, that is trying to, you know, obviously make someone better or take away something that might make them uh, worse or paralyzed, you know, certainly the risk of doing nothing was progressive weakness and eventual paralysis. And the goal of the surgery was to prevent that. Uh, instead, 
it certainly precipitated all of that. What was it? What was it like when she woke up, and in talking with her about it? You know, I think initially it's just a, a, a it's it's a huge shock to the the patient um, as well as the care team. But obviously for the patient, uh, you know, suddenly you cannot move your legs and. I think initially there's this this disbelief that that's really what's happened, um, and then you go through this period of uh, sort of denial uh, that that it's that you're not that you can't possibly be paralyzed, and then there's this major depression that kicks in when you realize yes you are paralyzed and no you cannot move your legs and no you cannot you know feel your bladder or your bowel when they need to go and you don't have really control over them. Um, again, she was fortunate in that she did recover uh, most of her functions. You know, she she regained control of her bladder and her bowels. Uh, she regained the ability to walk, but it, you know, it was a, a it was a one to two year process to get there. And it's a. Do you remember talking to her when the realization set in when she had woken up? And maybe a nurse called you and said the patient's saying she can't move her legs or something like that. Yeah, you know, I I do, and uh, you know, mostly it's, uh, you know, there are different ways to go uh, to approach that. Uh, you know, my own approach is just to to really just be apologetic. You know, obviously, my my goal is to make people better, not to make them worse. And when they are worse, it's it's to some extent because things didn't go the way I had intended, or you know, the outcome wasn't, uh, wasn't what anyone wanted. And, um, you know, I, I certainly apologize that, you know, here we are in a situation where she can't move her legs and try to assure her that, you know, we had done the best that we could or the best I could. And, uh, you know, although she was paralyzed, it was, she had some movement, you know, some what's called flicker movement or minimal movement in her, uh, in her legs. So, I was able to give her some hope that it should improve. All right. But you can't, you know, I couldn't say that it would definitely improve. And in the moment, I couldn't tell her that she would definitely be able to walk again. You know, there's, she was looking at the prospect of being wheelchair bound for, for months after the surgery. Um, and really it's a testament to her will uh, and the rehab doctors that she, that she worked with that got her up and walking. And truthfully, you know, now if you see her in the street and this is, I think four years later now, uh, you wouldn't be able to tell that she'd ever been paralyzed for a period of time. Um, but she, you know, despite that, you know, uh, despite her having done certainly the best I could have hoped for, given her initial paralysis, it still wasn't good enough for her to be a police officer, and she's still, you know, permanently disabled from her occupation as a police officer. Is that because of it? Does that paralysis occur because of vascular supply? You know, this is one of those scenarios where you know you beat yourself up and you re relive uh, the surgery, and it's you know sometimes you just don't know. I mean, the presumption is yes when we when we run out of reasons for it. You know, certainly you know we monitor the spinal cord during the surgery to make sure that there's no pressure that's applied during the spinal cord. Right. So during these operations, there's a whole team of neurophysiologists in the room. And they wire, uh, you know, both the brain as well as the the limbs, and send electrical signals from the brain, and they record them in the limbs to make sure that the the conduction, right? So back to that uh, 
electrical cable for the body analogy, um, you know, they're, they're recording electrical activity through the spinal cord. And throughout the surgery, there's really no issue with that, right? So things that, you know, when you, when you can't explain uh, a deterioration in function from compression, then the default ends up, you know, could there have been a vascular inf uh, insult, right? That it can result in a delayed weakness. And that's certainly possible. And that can occur, you know, once you've manipulated the spinal cord, it's more your ability to, to your body's ability to what's called auto-regulate, to maintain a constant flow of blood and oxygen to the spinal cord can be compromised and drops in blood pressure, right? So if she develops hypotension either during the surgery or after the surgery weakness uh, or paralysis to develop so and certainly the surgery itself as you're trying to remove the disc uh, you risk injuring blood vessels that also supply the spinal cord so any one of those things is certainly possible and you know that's one of the things that we end up reviewing in our uh, morbidity to mortality con uh, conferences you know, and then the other question is, you know, should we have done the surgery through the chest rather than doing it through the back of the spine? Uh, you know, would that have resulted in a better outcome? And the dilemma here is that there's really not a right answer. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. So as an outsider... Uh, so I graduated from med school 27 years ago, um, and things were very different at the time. For someone not involved in neurosurgery, orthosurgery, you know, spine surgery, any of those things you know, directly, other than someone who consults with you guys. During my training, non-spine surgeons and some spine surgeons would say to me in a precautionary tone, um, you know, there's no spine problem that surgery can't make worse. That was this sort of precept. And at the time, I certainly saw patients who had gotten worse after surgery or who had redos. And it's my sense as an outsider that things have changed. I see far less of that these days across the board. Whoever is doing the surgery, um, you know, it's not just an operator-dependent or discipline-dependent thing. I just see fewer patients coming back from redos. I used to see people who had had four redos meaning they had a surgery, they didn't get the, the best outcome, they went back for more surgeries. And I don't seem to see that anymore. And I see more patients who feel they got a good result. Does that feel accurate to you? Yeah, no, that's a really good observation. I think the uh, evolution of spine surgery as a subspecialty, both within uh, neurosurgery as well as orthopedic surgery, where you have uh, surgeons who are specially trained uh, and focused on the spine has made uh, a significant impact. Two, certainly the the techniques have evolved. Uh, you know, when I was in residency, uh, to do a lumbar decompression infusion was an eight-hour surgery. You know, we can do that now in two hours. Um, so the and in in conjunction with that, the the instruments are much more refined. Certainly, we're also doing you know both much more complex surgery safely and much less invasive surgery more uh, more readily right so you know the uh, you know I started doing endoscopic spine surgery 15 years ago and you know just gave it up after a few years uh, realizing that it just wasn't ready uh, yet in terms of 
technology. You know, both the the optics uh, as well as the depth perception that you lost uh, couldn't be made up for um, by the the limited exposure. You know, here we are, 15 years later, and I'm doing endoscopic spine surgery once again. And you know, the visualization that we get is phenomenal, and the instruments make it much easier to perform uh, than ever before. So that's on the on the most simple part of the surgery, at the least invasive end. On the more complex end, you know, we have new approaches to the spine. You know, coming at it from the front, the side, and from the back, and you know, doing many more combination types of surgeries where you're staging it. That has made it also uh, safer for the patients. Um, also, it's always important to keep in mind that you know, I think educating the patients in terms of what's a reasonable outcome is important, right? No one or very few people are trying to fix back pain with back surgery. And I think in the early days, people were hopeful that they could, you know, fusing the spine would solve back. And none of us think that that's possible uh, anymore. What predictions do you have about future directions for neurosurgery and for spine surgery? What do you think we're going to see in the next decade or two? You know, increased, I think, specialization uh, and sort of across uh, specialty uh, mergers. And what I mean by that is, you know, right now you can get the spine surgery from either neurosurgery or orthopedics. But, you know, some of us are talking that really spine surgery ought to almost be its own specialty, uh, that you may start out in a variety of, you know, sort of internships or early residencies. But eventually there should be a common pathway towards spine surgery as its own as its own specialty. Uh, you know, similar processes are happening within neurosurgery where you have folks that are really focusing just on brain surgery or just on vascular neurosurgery or just on functional neurosurgery. Certainly in my training, uh, when you finish training, uh, you're expected to come out and do everything. And now my practice and certainly our group's practice is a very specialized kind of practice. So you raise an interesting question for, for now, when you pick a spine surgeon, you are either picking a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic surgeon. Now, I, you know, I realize there could be a little bit of contention here, but it's just uh, as earnestly as you can put it, what do you think should inform a decision about choosing uh, one or the other if you know you might need surgery? Um, one or the other in terms picking of... Picking a neurosurgeon versus an orthopedic surgeon for a spine surgery. Of course, I'm biased. <laughs> I have to pre <laughs> preface it by saying, I'm, you know, it's not a fair question. And, and I'm and I'm interviewing Alex Vaccaro tomorrow. I just tell you, and I'm going to ask him the same question. Yeah. So, of course, I think a neurosurgeon is uh, <laughs> better suited to most uh, spine surgeries. You know, the goal of the spine surgery, and I'll I'll be a little bit more adamant, knowing that. Uh, you have Alex up next because I'm sure he's going to say, of course, it has to be an orthopedic surgeon. It's all about the bones. Uh, and my retort is really, it's all about the nerves. I mean, the majority of spine surgery, you know, aside from trauma with a fracture, is really about freeing up nerves. And neurosurgeons will have spent their whole training period from, you know, day zero almost of residency through seven years of residency doing spine surgery. Uh, you know, your, our orthopedic colleagues uh, will have a very mixed exposure to spine surgery, often none or minimal until they do a fellowship. Whereas for neurosurgery, you're doing spine surgery throughout seven years, and then you're doing a fellowship on top of that. 
there's there's friendly rivalry here. Do people, I mean, do people mix and get along culturally, or is there actually a, a division between neurosurgical and orthopedic surgical uh, spine surgeons? Uh, you know, I think it's local culture. I mean, certainly here we get along very well. I mean, Alex is is a is a great man. Uh, I really enjoy working with him. He and I have operated together. Actually, uh, you know, we both have called each other in for uh, assistance on various complex procedures. Uh, there are certain things that each one of us does better or worse than the other. Certainly, um, and it's very collegial here. I think in other institutions, it's a little bit more contentious the relationship. How in places where. Um things are not as unified. How is there some way in which people sort out who gets what cases or is it complete overlap? Uh, there are some divisions, you know, I've, I've been other places where, um, you know, all of the trauma call will come into one department or the other, you know, here our routine is to alternate, uh, call lines. Uh, there are other places where, um, there are much more disagreement about how to manage cases. I think here we've come to terms on how to manage things in a very relatively comparable fashion. So, uh, you know, you're not getting completely different opinions, whether you speak to an orthopedic spine surgeon or a neurospine surgeon. Are there any classic differences in, in management between ortho and neurosurgery across the country? You know, I think there used to be, you know, certainly uh, when I was training, you know, the dogma was the neurosurgeons would get pressure off the nerves. And then the uh, orthopedic surgeons would come in and uh, do the hardware, you know, the instrumentation and the fusion. But, you know, in the modern era, we're, we're each doing everything, you know, both the decompression as well as the fusion. So to go back to the original question, if someone, let's say someone's got spinal stenosis, let's just say a pretty classic, you know, lower lumbar stenosis, much like the case you discussed, how do they, you know, is there any taking stepping back and being as unbiased as you can like how would they weigh up whether to go to a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic surgeon you know i think experience uh can't be underrated um it's very hard you know we always i always wonder about this how do you tell how good a surgeon is and unless you know them intimately as a surgeon you know i can tell you who are the good surgeons not the good surgeons within my uh or who are the better surgeons within the group because i've seen them operate it's impossible to get at that um as a patient i think or if you're not within that group um you know certainly some people have more or less notoriety but that notoriety doesn't always translate to ability i think uh if you are trying to choose between one or the other again i have to fall back on you know most neurosurgeons uh, when it's just a, simple, a straightforward, uh, you know, decompression infusion, um, have more experience in spine surgery uh, as part of their training. Now, once you get out of training and you're in a practice, and your practice is mainly a brain surgery practice, you're probably not the best person to be doing complex spine surgeries, right? So I think it really depends on what that individual surgeon's uh, special interest and focus is. And I think that's really the question to ask them is, you know, are you a spine surgeon or are you a general neurosurgeon? Are you a spine surgeon or are you a general orthopedic surgeon who happens to do spine surgery occasionally? You know, you touched on a really interesting question, which is the kind of car mechanic question. Um, you know, I do not know if I'm in a strange city and I have a problem with my car, um, whether the car mechanic that I visit is good or not, whether they are going to identify a real problem uh, honestly or competently or not, 
Um, so if you were in a country that you're not familiar with, let's say you're visiting France and, uh, you know, you get a severe central prolapse, right? And it just needs to be worked on and you can't fly home for it for some reason. Um, you know, you don't know people locally that you can reach out to. How would you set about trying to work out who to have do your surgery? You know, I think one is ask them, is this a common surgery for them, right? If they've never done it before, you don't want that person. Uh, if they've done hundreds of it, uh, you they're probably okay doing it. Uh, you know, so one is just how often they do it. And two is, you know, are they trained for this? Um, and then lastly, you know, word of mouth, if there's any way to ask around uh, what others' experience with that surgeon is, right? If you're in a foreign country, that might be more difficult to do. Uh, but I think, you know, people do develop a reputation uh, within their uh, local environment, similar to your car mechanic. You know, that car mechanic that you may take your car to will have a reputation. And ideally, you'd want to talk to other folks who've been to that that car mechanic and you want to make sure you know if you have them if you happen to have a maserati that they've actually taken care of a maserati before and they're not busy taking care of you know toyotas all the time right or in my case a honda pilot <laughs> <Even better. laughs> i mean i listen i um i'll tell you what i did um uh in the only real case that we've got which is um you know my wife has had four c-sections and uh i talked to the chief residents and the uh, the uh, uh, scrub nurses, and I basically put it to them. The question I asked them was, I said, uh, you know, who makes good decisions and who has good hands? No, that was perfect, right? Because that's really asking sort of people who've seen that person uh, do their work, right? It's sort of like asking other mechanics within the garage, who's the good mechanic in that in that garage. But that's an area where we've gotten access uh, that that ordinary non-physician people simply don't have. So. Yeah, no, and it's similar to you know when I was working in a garage in school, uh, you know everyone knew who the best mechanic in that garage was. He was just phenomenal. He had like an innate ability to get engines working again that no one else could figure out what was wrong with them. Well, I imagine I've got to free you up. You're going into a case. So I would like to say, Dr. Jack Jello, thank you so much for appearing on Medical Moments. Great. Thank you, Paris. It's a pleasure. This is Medical Murmurs. If you're a medical student or just interested in medical careers, there is another episode with the same guest where we focus on career questions such as how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called Medical Murmurs Medical Student Edition. Check it out.